What's happening, weirdos? As I've been talking about this book for the past month, two months, uh, this is Brian Murarescu, who I hope I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> Brian Murarescu. Murarescu. Uh, he wrote The Immortality Key, which is a book that absolutely uh, blew my mind changed my life. I loved it. Uh, as I say in this interview, it's like an Indiana Jones epic, uh, but real life about the psychedelic origins of, as he says, the mystery, uh, the religion, excuse me, the religion with no name. It's unbelievable. I won't tell you too much about it here because we do talk about it in the con- in the conversation you're about to listen to, uh, but check it out. It is an incredible book. I love it. I love it. I love it. You can also watch he has a, a YouTube video made by the wonderful channel After School um, that sort of talks about the main points of the book, which I also highly recommend. So let's get to it. Thank you for tuning in. As always, if you want to show your support of the show, please try a Pete's pick like my MeUndies. Today I'm wearing peach. They're just sort of a plain peach. MeUndies makes fun patterns. MeUndies makes plain patterns. MeUndies is the most comfortable and softest underwear that I've owned And several years ago, I heard them advertised on another podcast, and Val and I both did a complete undies overhaul. We wanted to have comfortable, quality underwear, and I'm so glad that we we did. Not only do they fit great, I love the patterns. Uh, I actually, because I'm in, uh, you know, an actor, I often have to change in front of people, and they get a lot of comments, which I like. Uh, Yesterday was unicorns, got a lot of unicorn jokes, which I liked. Um, MeUndies believes that comfort is about more than what's touching your skin. It's about feeling comfortable in your skin. That's why MeUndies sources the softest, most comfortable fabrics imaginable. Express yourself every day in new limited edition prints because what you wear on the outside should empower you from the inside. That's like their whole thing. You know when you rush home to change into something more comfortable? Well, that's MeUndies. It's like they pull the clouds from the sky and they spin it into undies, socks, bralettes, and loungewear. You can choose from endless styles in sizes extra small to 4XL. I'm, I'm a 40 waist. I actually like the 3XL. I just like them a little bit looser. Uh, they're sustainably soft micro-modal and new ultralight breathe fabrics are so comfy and, well, breathable, so you can move free or not. It's up to you. MeUndies has a great offer for weirdos. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has a problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats and no questions. So show your support of the show and get some MeUndies. Everybody needs underwear. That's a fun and easy way to show your support. Go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird for 15% off and free shipping. We also, speaking of soft, I'm also wearing my perfect jeans. As you guys know, if you've seen me do stand-up, I hate a hard pant. Uh, I don't understand why we can't just give in, move into the 21st century, and start wearing comfortable, soft pants that also look good. Enter the perfect jean, my absolute favorite jean. I haven't taken them off since they arrived, and that was months ago. They look great, They fit great, and they're super soft and flexible fabric that looks so good, no one needs to know it's a secret soft, flexible fabric. I got tired of wearing yoga pants in public like I was Sting or Phil Collins. I couldn't pull it off. Why are we trapping our bodies, restricting them like they owe us money? These are the best pants I have ever owned. They're made from premium stretch fabric. There's 2% spandex and 2.5% rayon for extra comfort and movement that give your man parts the room they require. 
The gene also stretches so your nuts ain't crushed, thereby providing the only true home, this is my favorite part, for your bone. They are made from a specialized washing so your jeans literally feel as soft as a baby's bottom. You may even forget you're wearing pants and they're incredibly durable, constructed utilizing the highest quality materials and sewing techniques to provide you with a product that is built to last. And best of all, they're not khakis. Fuck your khakis and spare your nuts. The perfect jean for the perfectly imperfect man. Just 60 bucks when you use promo code WEIRDO at checkout. Show your support. Get these pants only for 60 bucks. Liberate your lower limbs with the one and only perfect gene. Whether you're working with lemons or lentils, a three-leaf clover, or a big old honking eggplant, the perfect gene has got you covered. Take a peek at theperfectgene.nyc. That's www.theperfectgene.nyc. And use promo code WEIRDO for 25% off at checkout and show your support of the show. Last but not least, one of my favorite Pete picks, because I spend so much time on this Pete's pick, is Brooklinen Sheets. How's your comforter looking these days? Maybe a lot like you feel? Maybe a little lumpy? Maybe a little deflated? No longer has the same fluff it used to? Well, maybe it's time to refresh with Brooklinen. Brooklinen creates beautiful, high-quality bedding and home essentials. They work directly with manufacturers to give you a fair price. That means no middlemen. That means no markups. Their comforters come in lightweight, all-season, and ultra-warm to suit every type of sleeper and lifestyle. There's even my favorite, which is the weighted comforter, which makes me feel like I'm back in the womb. Great for stress relief. They also offer a variety of materials, including an eco-friendly recycled down alternative. And Brooklinen's comforters pair perfectly with their perfect soft sheets, pillows, and duvet covers. There's a reason Brooklinen has over 75,000 five-star reviews and counting. We've uh, changed our entire bedding system to Brooklinen. We haven't looked back. Instead of looking forward to staying in like a nice five-star hotel that's overpriced, uh, I now look forward to coming home to my own bed for the same level of luxury without the markup. So treat yourself to ultimate comfort with Brooklinen's Comforter Collection. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code WEIRD to get $25 off for the minimum purchase of $100. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code WEIRD is what you enter for $25 off with a minimum purchase of $100. One last time, brooklinen.com, promo code WEIRD and show your support of this podcast. I do want to say thanks to everybody that came out to the live show. It was incredible. You can still view the video for a couple more days. If you want to see the video of me, Jason Schwartzman, and uh, Matt Berninger, you can go to PeteHolmes.com. The link is there. You can still watch that if you weren't able to join us live, I think, for the next five days. It'll still be up there. And then after that, we will release the audio only. But if you want to see the video, go to PeteHolmes.com. And uh, name your price, and you can watch that now. Uh, All right, that's it. Definitely check out The Immortality Key after listening to this. I feel like you're going to want to check it out for sure. And enjoy this chat with my new friend, Brian. I'm not even going to say it. Mararescu. Mararescu. The author of The Immortality Key. Get into it. Wow, he looks, you look just like your photo. (laughs) So prosecutorial. Yeah, that does look like a lawyer. How are you? What's up, bro? Nice to see you. You too, man. We've met email meet. We've email met. <laughs> now we chat, internet chat. It's it's a new level for us. It is. 
It's like the first time you call somebody you've only ever texted with. It's a, it's a raising the intimacy for sure. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with it. I'm going to turn my video off just as a power move. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be so funny. Um, we're recording. Uh, you've listened to a few episodes of this podcast uh, we talked about, and so you probably know the phenomenon that the guest never knows that we're that we just start recording. And I hope that's okay. I love it. I'm so excited. I'm. This is not. This is not a paid advertisement. I, your book is unbelievable. I love it so much. I haven't yet finished it. I sort of, uh, I hope I don't regret this, but I made the choice to keep some questions. So when we talked, I would still have like a earnest eagerness to like get to the bottom of a, a few things. Um, but the book is, if I were to put a quote on the back jacket, I would say it's like Indiana Jones. It's It has the thrill and the humor and the fun of an Indiana, like a real life Indiana Jones, but the stakes couldn't be higher. It's like, it's like, it's literally about immortality. It's literally about, uh, the, the backbone of all world religion, which is the backbone of human civilization. Even if you're not a religious person, it is the back. So it's like you went to these places and it really does. Sorry to make you listen to this, but, um, it, it reads like a novel, you know what I mean? Like you talk about where you are, who you're meeting, how you feel. You talk about getting special access to things you never thought you'd be able to see. There's incredible photographs of vases where they're preparing um, what you're wondering could be a psychedelic mixture and all this stuff. So I just couldn't – it is academic. I only say that because I like to be proud that I'm reading an academic book. I'm like, look at you. You're reading an academic book. But well it done, it, yeah, exactly. So you get that pleasure. This is the plug. But it's so fun to read. It's super fun. And it's filled with good um, trip stories, too, which I find very impactful when I read about people that have taken psychedelics. And that's my little preamble. Welcome to the show. That's all just to say I love the book so much. It's called The Immortality Key. I've recommended it and given it away so many times. And I haven't been this excited to talk to somebody in a very long time. So thank you Holy for coming goodness. Thank you. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, man. That's the bark and the root of the ayahuasca tree. And Joseph <laughs> was the was the pot, man. None of it is what it seems, man. <laughs> <laughs> Mary's like Sicotia Viridis. And when she meets the Banisteriopsis coffee, oh, they get to grooving, man. You've never seen it like this. Exactly. You know, it's funny. As I was saying, it's like Indiana Jones. And I, this is my first question to you because I will just talk and talk and talk because I'm so excited. Good. When I watch movies now, and I really want to know your experience that are like the Avengers. Like on our date night, Val and I are so tired, we often just watch a Marvel movie. And when you start to uncover, for lack of a better term, real magic, stories about a tesseract, there's always like an, an item that enlightens, enlivens, is the source of all being. Um, it becomes less interesting. There, this is the last thing I swear I'm going to say, but there's a part where Vision, I don't know if you've seen the Avengers. No. Vision is, it's Paul Bettany's character and he has a stone right where his bindi would be, where his third eye would be, which is already, right? And then he points to it and he goes, you know, this is part of me and yet I don't understand it. Yet I know it controls me. Um, he's an artificial intelligence. And I'm like, it's so dumb 
I understand it. But it is so dumb to watch a movie about someone trying to understand their infinity stone when you and I are made of an infinity stone and there's so much history and forget about reading stuff. There's psychoactive plants that want to like usher in a new age. So my first question for you is when you watch movies or read fairy tales or whatever, do you ever just get that feeling that I get, which is like enough with the make-believe, like let's get to it. We're all, we're only here for so long. I'm tired of listening to make-believe stories of self-transformation, self-realization. There's a time when you go like, all right, I'm 41, fuck this shit. Like, let's start doing the real work instead of just playing make-believe all the time. Um, what is make-believe? I mean, I haven't watched a good movie since old school. Um, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's been a couple of years. We mostly watch a lot of Dora. Um, yes. Yes. She's very popular. We watched Frozen about 3,600 times. Well, Frozen, uh, that's a good one. Well, that's, So I make a point of pausing on the scene where the trolls hold up the Amanita muscaria mushroom, which is kind of the, the secret to troll love. I'll, I'll send you a screenshot. But, I'm trying to remember. That's the red and white mushroom. Exactly that's our, right. That's our, that's our Santa Claus mushroom. That, that's the Siberian shamanic reindeer mushroom that we think it, may lie behind the, the, the Santa, the, the St. Nick mythology. But, I mean, I find it there. You find it all over. Once you're looking for it, you see mushrooms all over the place. Which but is even... But it is here and there. <laughs> I'm going to make sure you don't go too, too quickly in this frozen part. So they're trolls. And anybody that knows Terrence McKenna or, or reads trip stories tells you that the energy of these plants is these mischievous little elves. We see Santa's elves and they're again in frozen. It's almost like a DNA recognition. Even if you have no firsthand experience of these things where you go like, of course the magic comes from these trolls. Like that just makes sense to me. And not just, I, I, I can't say why, but it, it works for us. But I do think it has ties back to that. Continue please. Frozen. Uh, frozen. So uh, Terrence, yeah, mentions the self-transforming machine elves. And yes, the self-bounce, like bouncing basketballs. <laughs> which I've never seen, but it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was talking to his brother actually last week, Dennis McKenna. Who's I know brother. Dennis. You know Dennis? <laughs> I don't know him, but I know him from reading Terrence's books. Uh, and he tells, talks about Dennis quite a bit. We, um, so we were talking about hyperlinguistic data and the experiment at La Chorrera, which for those who don't know, was this guy Terrence and his brother Dennis uh, traipsing down to the Amazon basin to consume more than heroic amounts of various psychoactive drugs and thereby producing some kind of translinguistic matter. If you hum in the right way, the DNA of the plant invades your own DNA and you wind up merging with the cosmic DNA. In any event, it was a failed experiment um, in which they, they almost went crazy. But, but Dennis took umbrage at my book for not diving more deeply into the mushrooms of our past. And I had to explain, it's really hard to find mushrooms unless you're watching Frozen. <laughs> Wait, he wanted you to... Well, I take umbrage with uh, Terrence's book for taking a 12-page break, giving me a recipe I'll never be able to follow. Very similar. <laughs> I'm, I'm like running through it. It's actually a part where Dennis takes over the book, and he writes out a very, um, you know, using insane, like you're saying, what is make-believe, what is insanity? It's not, I'm not saying it's insanity. I'm just saying if you're not in that place and you're reading this, you're just sort of like, 
it's a child explaining Pokemon. You don't know what he's mm. talking about. So you're like, this is boring to me. Mm. So one of the things that's great about your book is um, you very wisely didn't take any uh, psychoactive plants because that would put you in this other category. Um, it's what happened to Ramdas, who's my my beloved teacher. He he, you'll love, I I think I will have a lot of things each other will love. But he goes Harvard. The board at Harvard was like, that's not the scientific method. And he's like, Timothy Timothy Leary argued that it was. He was like, yes, it is. And Ramdas just conceded the point. He was like, you're right. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm data. <laughs> like. <laughs> I'm data, and it's even funnier. He goes, "You may study me." <laughs> that, that's 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 sort of my point. Is that at a certain point in my life, I don't want to watch the. I do still like watching the test rack, but I'm just saying the inner work has to follow the clues. You see the mushroom in Frozen, and even if you don't do it with psychedelics, you have to go like, "What are these things pointing me to? Why does it mean so much to me?" Yeah. Uh, that we keep telling the same story over and over and over and over and over and over because it's it's the DNA of of, of our existence. And and it goes back centuries and, and millennia. I mean, the, the, the real clue for me um, why I went down this psychedelic rabbit hole and remained a virgin was because I saw one of those clues on the 57th floor of the one Chase Manhattan building in downtown Manhattan uh, near Ground Zero in 2007. And I was reading about psilocybin and I didn't know anything about psilocybin, but I was reading about the early volunteers and their testimony from these experiments at Hopkins. And they were talking about very mystical things, crazy, yeah. mystical, make-believe things about this life-transforming experience from a single dose of psilocybin. And the classics nerd that I was was immediately reminded of what little testimony survives from the ancient mysteries, from people like Plato and Pindar and Sophocles and all the greatest and best lights of uh, you know, ancient Athens and Rome. And there was this clue. And, you know, as a total virgin, I had no idea about psychedelics, but there was Terrence McKenna waiting just around the corner. And I read, <laughs> I read Food of the Gods and there was this mischievous little smile saying, there might be something here that you've been ignoring for the first 27 years of your life. And even more fascinating, there's something here that's, ancient it's older than writing so the real thrill of the book is i sent you the, the, the my book so you could read the mushrooms chapter i had that experience where religion was just uh, a placebo i don't say that with any disrespect i think it was a uh, a natural and necessary placebo phase i don't think when i was 10 i needed to be di diving into the deep end of uh, infinite mystery. That would be not correct uh, for, for me, or I don't recommend that for anyone. Um, but then I, I woke up to like, wait, this is a, this is a real thing that's happening. It's not, you said that to me, you're like, you know, you're talking about, sorry, I'm all over the place, but I can't wait to tell you this too. Val and I were like on this hike yesterday. And I said to her, isn't it funny? I took mushrooms and the big takeaway was Oh, there's things you can't explain. As our homeboy, um, Richard Rohr, Joseph Campbell, they're saying like, there's some truths that are so big, they can only be told with lies. Mm -hmm. And that's what a metaphor is, basically. It, mm -hmm. It's the only way you get close. And I was like, that was such a revelation to me. But we stopped and we just smelled some honeysuckle. And then we walked away from the honeysuckle. And I said, Val, 
It's so funny that I went to mushrooms to be like, some things you can't explain. I'm like, explain to me what honeysuckle smells like. We had just smelled it. The memory was still crisping in my brain, but I couldn't describe it. Everything is a mystery. Everything is indescribable. Nothing is is perfectly quantifiable outside of mathematics, which that's the pleasure of it, I suppose. But like when you taste that big mystery, it sort of wakes you up to the little mysteries everywhere. They're everywhere. Therese of Lisieux, uh, the Carmelite who died at 24, says that there's a science about which God knows very little, and that's addition and subtraction. It's really, it's really hard to quantify these things that don't make a lot of sense, but it's the things that don't make a lot of sense that in a very real, a very serious way are the key. I think they are the key to unlocking some of these mysteries. I think straight from the mouth of Jesus, he talks about these keys talks about these experiences and our other homeboy Joseph Campbell talks about the need for lived experience and, and capturing, you know, that, that rapture of being alive more so than looking for the meaning of life or the meaning of honeysuckle. It's the experience of, of right. smelling it, tasting it, being it in the here and now uh, be here now from Ram Dass, that that is the real mystery of life. And I think it's our goal. It's our, it's our challenge to, to live in that mystery moment by moment. That's right. And to suffer the humiliation, the necessary humiliation, meaning humbling, of not being able to report it. Um, if you ever do uh, mushrooms, one of the wonderful feelings, it really does feel like a mischievous secret you have with an elf. And there is a sense of humor to it, as if the elf is saying, you say to the elf, but I can't bring this back. And the elf laughs at you and goes, I know. And <laughs> Every single time, and I haven't done it that many times, I'm not like a huge psychonaut, but every time, I, that being said, I've done it more than most people, because <laughs> I don't think most people do them. Um, every single time I go there, I have the same epiphany, which is um, there's no way to describe it. There's no way to even remember it, um, meaning uh, it's, it, Ram Dass would always say it's like moldering butterflies. It's just... A, a, fi a butterfly on fire. Like you, you try to start talking about it. It's the Tao. The Tao that can be spoken of cannot be, is not the eternal Tao. Well, is it, is it too early to talk about Christ? Are we, are we in Christ territory? I can't wait to get to Christ. I have so many, I have my little notes and they're all about Jesus. Um, they're not all about Jesus. Some of them are about the Avengers, but we already covered that. <laughs> We'll check that box and go on to the, uh, the, the unspeakable mystery. This is why Jesus speaks in parables. And when he's asked by the apostles why he speaks in parables, why he speaks in riddles, like uh, the prodigal son and the mustard seed, etc., he says in, in, in Mark 4.11 that, that it's a mustadion. He, he talks in riddles because it's a mystery. And the New Testament concordance literally defines the Greek word mustadion that comes out of Jesus's mouth as a religious secret uh, to be confided only to the initiates and not to be communicated by them to anybody else. So mm. Christianity is absolutely born with secrets. And the only question is, what is that secret and how to access it? Right, which is where we start getting into the really groovy fun, which is the, the true meaning of the, of the Eucharist. And I know that you have had to say this a billion times, and I, I know a little bit, from my book tour, the burden of having to summarize your book. So we're going to try, because it's just like, just read the book. You know what I mean? It's like, just get to it. 
But in the intro to your book, uh, which I thought was brilliant um, and worth reading, you know those intros that you're just like, why did I waste? <laughs> why did I waste my time with this? Uh, well, there's an intro and there's a forward, and they're both great. Um, but uh, he says it's like someone talking about sex. And you can study sex. You can even look at pornography. Like, I'll give you pornography. I'll give you masturbation. It's not going to be the same as as sex. Uh, I, re- <laughs> I remembered after I got divorced. This is an overshare, but this is what we do on the podcast. I was like, oh, I, I'll just masturbate all the time. That'll be fine. And it, it hit me about a month later. I was like, it's not the same. It's It's not... It's it's not eating. It's like looking at food or it's smelling food, but you're not actually getting the same sustenance from it. So that's when I really realized it was a separate appetite. Similarly, mysticism, that visceral experience of the divine, which can't really be talked about except in parable um, or saying it's like it's like a honeysuckle. You know what I mean? It's it's like the smell of a honeysuckle. And in that moment, before we've ruined it with analysis, Val and I were anchored into the into the moment and and into the mystery, and going like just as I can't explain myself, I can't explain this flower, I can't explain anything. But um, mushrooms really does help you get into that unknowing. I I, I did want to take you back to the mysteries because when you say that, I think people might go, "Oh, the mysteries!" Like he's just saying the mysteries of the universe. You're talking about something very specific that the ancient Greeks partook in. So when you said Plato, Marcus Aurelius, perhaps, all of these great thinkers, the people who made democracy, I'm loading you with these things and I'm going to let you go. I didn't tweet it because I didn't want to tweet something political and I didn't want to tweet anything even violent adjacent. But my fantasy for bad political leaders or, or people that seem to be off the path is never violence. It's always someone, please put LSD in their coffee. <laughs> like it's just, or, or better, say we need to take LSD together and so it's not like a hoax. Because reading your book and these Marcus Aurelius, for example, pot- potentially doing these things, I was like, of course they came up with democracy. And of course, the further we get from them, look at COVID. COVID seems to be a crisis of people being incapable of relating to someone who's going through something that they're not going through. So you go like, we should wear a mask. And you're like, but I don't know anybody that has it. Or, or, or I knew somebody that got it and they were fine. So they they have no corporate imagination. So talk first with what the mysteries are and then anything else that just came to mind. Um, okay, so so mysteries. Mysteries, the way it's referred to in antiquity, are kind of these secret ceremonies and rites. The best definition is a really wacky ritual of death and rebirth. It's the one thing that unites all the mysteries is some con- some concept of, of death and rebirth. You can find it in the mysteries of Eleusis, which are probably the most famous and most well-known of the ancient mysteries to which Plato and Marcus Aurelius were both initiated, separated by hundreds of years. There's also the wilder mysteries of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and ecstasy and theater and sex and mystical rapture. Um, and I would say, because of what I mentioned about the New Testament, that there are you know concepts of mysteries in the very earliest days of Christianity. This concept of a secret sacrament, private meetings inside people's homes before there were brick and mortar basilicas. So 
Christianity does share something in common with these pagan cults. And, and I think the big question is, is how much in common did they share? Um, you know, this wasn't like a controversial thing to talk about in 1950. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. writes a famous paper about the influence of the mystery religions on Christianity in 1950. And so, I mean, this has been known for over 100 years. It's, it's it, almost unfortunate phrasing because, again, when Martin, I had read that and then when I read it in your book, I read it with new eyes. When he says the mystery religions, it just sounds like a catch-all term for the West to be like those wacky religions. You know what I mean? <laughs> the mystery religion. He means the ones rooted in ceremonial rites, like R-I-T-E-S, rites. Yes, and, and none other. And I, I would say, if you want a real definition, the mysteries of Eleusis specifically, I've, I'm on the record saying, I think it's the real religion of the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks who we immediately think about worshiping 12 gods on top of Mount Olympus and Poseidon in the sea is all kind of bullshit. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to teach it in high school mythology, but it's not what called to the, the most skeptical, brilliant minds of the ancient world that created democracy and the arts and sciences and philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. To them, they approached religion the same way they approached the scientific method. And there weren't, you know, there wasn't much daylight between the two. Skeptical people want to see proof of the afterlife. And so the initiates went to Eleusis to drink a magic potion and see a vision of a goddess, have a beatific vision. This is how the gold standard classic scholars talk about that vision. They say the beatific vision, and they consciously borrow that phrase from Christianity because the, the testimony is almost universal that people went there to confront their mortality and to become immortal, nothing less than becoming immortal. And those who went to Eleusis and saw the vision of Persephone resurrecting from the underworld were guaranteed some kind of immortality. Hmm. I mean, that just takes me even to Moses, which you touch, touch on, and the Garden of Eden. I mean, everything seems to be, you know, to me, it's almost, there's lots of ways to interpret the Garden of Eden, lots of ways to interpret going up to Mount Sinai and seeing a burning bush that's uh, burns but is not consumed, and and God says, um, I am that I am, or I am beingness. I mean, if you want to talk to somebody else that says that, something was burning with light but wasn't consumed, and God says directly to you, I am isness itself, and I'm inside of you, and I'm everything, and, and, and there's only one life anyway— um, just talk to somebody that just came down from a psychedelic trip. You can do it. On, you can do it on YouTube. Some of my research into you, not that I needed to do more, led me to more videos that people had labeled with your name for some reason that were just trip stories. And they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous trip stories of surrendering attachment, of, of, of realizing their oneness. And they're incredibly moving. They, 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 they feel like bedtime stories from a childhood you don't remember. You know what I mean? Like some sort of encoded on your soul. You're like, yeah, right on, right on. <laughs> it's really, really fun. Now, this is the thing. And it transcends, you know, obviously it transcends religion. If you think of, you know, Richard Rohr's concept of the universal Christ, it's, it's so, the mystery is so big, you know, unbound being that is beyond the categories of being and non-being. That this, this ultimate mystery of the isness is so big, it obviously transcends religion, transcends tradition, transcends age. I mean, I start the book very conscientiously with a woman named Dinah Baser, who, who was diagnosed with cancer and became one of the volunteers in these NYU psilocybin trials. And she's an atheist. 
to this day is an atheist, but you know, from her one only dose of psilocybin, the atheist winds up describing the climax of her experience as being bathed in God's love. And that's the language she uses to describe the mystery. And when you ask her, like, why would you say that? Why, why would you say the love of nature or the love of the cosmos? And she says, because we don't know about any of this stuff. And frankly, the language works for me. And she talks about the sensibility that every moment is an eternity of its own. And it reads like medieval Christian contemplative literature. Mm, mm. Um, it, reads, it reads like the mysticism you would find in, in the Kabbalistic tradition of Judaism or in, in the Sufi tradition of Islam, um, obviously in the Eastern traditions. And so it's just the mystery is so big that psychedelics seem to be at least one vehicle to get people there. And Richard Rohr coming in hot. I love he's, There's two things that he says. One is it's another finger pointing at the moon kind of uh, way of putting it. It's like we've fallen in love with the road signs, but we don't go to where the road signs are pointing. He's like, we're all worshiping road signs that say this way to Detroit. But he's like, you forgot that the point was to like go to Detroit. <laughs> and when, when Dina says God, even though she maintains her atheism, which, I, which is a paradox that I, I won't say I completely understand that's arrogant, but I do understand what she's, what she's about in that. Um, Richie says, you can't fall in love with an energy. And when you're trying to communicate love, if you say that, even when you, when I try to soften it and drop the God word, because God has been used to murder, God has been used to rape, God has been used to do all, all these horrible things. So I understand why it's loaded. But when you come back from a trip and you say, God, it's because there was a partner there. There, There's, there was a lover there. It's a great Richie line too. He goes, the mystics never encounter a disciplinarian. They always encounter a lover. And that doesn't mean there isn't like a burning up of your ego, a death, uh, losing your attachment, being faced with the, the death of everyone you've ever loved. These are common experiences. But at the end of it, it was it was seducing you with unlikely means into like a very ecstatic and sensual union. I mean, before I read your book, I thought I was getting funky by talking about how sexual the Eucharist is, like eat my body and drink my blood. Um, you, you brought another layer into that. Um, we were talking about deer. We were talking about, um, there's shamans, certain mushrooms get processed in the metabolism and then it's the urine or the blood of a goat that becomes psychoactive for humans. So I, I kind of, I was like, holy shit. I thought we were just going and killing goats. It's, is it possible that we were killing goats, drinking blood and tripping? Not just sort of, maybe it wasn't, it's still certainly arguably barbaric, but is it possible that these people weren't so different from us, that they were doing it because there was something better than just a good feeling of belonging to a tradition, but there was actually something paying out, meaning an experience. There had to be something paying out. I mean, there, there just, there just had to be, whether it's the, it's the mysteries of the ancient world or, or it's Christianity. I mean, it's important to state that we don't have answers to this stuff, Pete. I mean, you know, how did um, a carpenter's son from Galilee become the most famous human being who ever lived? How did an illegal cult of, you know, a dozen or so illiterate day laborers in a neglected part of the Roman Empire come to convert the entire empire to this illegal religion and go on to become the biggest religion the world's ever known of two and a half billion people today? Like we... You can read Rodney Stark and you can read Bart Ehrman and Elaine Pagels and all, all these great Christian scholars. No one has the answer. I don't have the answer either. But 
whatever kept Christianity alive, and I focus a lot on paleo-Christianity, the first 300 years after Jesus, before Constantine, before it becomes legal and above board. I focus on that because, I mean, it's got to be the most interesting moment in the history of the faith. And whatever was happening had to be something extraordinarily profound, which doesn't mean it was psychedelics in every instance, but clearly it was something mystical. It was something visionary. And it was something that pulled people together where they said, I'm going to leave the cult the religion of my ancestors going back centuries, if not millennia. And I'm going to join an illegal cult and risk being thrown to the lions because this right. is to drink his blood. That, that's a pretty good calling card. I love what you just said, Brian, so much. Meaning you don't become the biggest, most magnetic movement in religion by telling people, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't have to tell you this. But a lot of people don't know that's in Leviticus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's a lot of, um, I think one of the only, this is just Bible nerd fun. One of the only things that was unique to Jesus teaching wise was love your enemy. Mm-hmm. That was sort of um, earmarked as potentially like really like, holy shit, where'd this guy get this? But even even that is um, is sort of an extension of, of love your, of your neighbor as yourself. I'm not trying to discredit. I'm trying to say there was more going on. And that's really where I go, fuck the Tesseract, fuck uh, Frozen. There, This thing that changed my life and changed Dina's life and that you've been studying was available. <laughs> it's like finding out Jesus had the internet, but it's so much better than the internet because it's an internet that fires up and animates inside of you. And Look at the Grateful Dead, right? I mean, I wonder what you make of um, Alex and Allison Gray. I, I've been at their house. I, I didn't take drugs, but I was at their house where lots of people were coming to take this sacrament and, and sort of party down. Or maybe, well, I don't know if they were, but it sure seemed like they were. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Um, what I'm saying is go to a Tool concert. Go to follow the Grateful Dead. What is happening I'm not even making fun of the Grateful Dead, but I'm saying it's not the music. It, it's, you know what I mean? Like, you don't get people quitting their job to follow a band because of a 22-minute guitar solo. Speak to that. <laughs> Depends how good the guitar solo is. But yeah. I, I'm not jumping on the easy bandwagon of saying it's hippie music or anything. I think it's great. Uh, I don't listen to it, but I, I understand its merit, I think, in the same way that I understand. To the same degree, I understand that Dean is an atheist that said God's love. <laughs> so, so not completely. But... When it comes to human revolution, it better be like sex. And and Terrence McKenna said, going through your life without taking psychedelics is like going through your life without ha- having sex. And I would agree with that. Um, it's maybe not for everybody, but in my experience, I was like, this is the realest thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, and I can't, and I can't believe I almost didn't do it. And my first thought was, I got to give it to my mom. I haven't, and I, I never will because she's eighty, and I'm worried uh, that that's not a good call. But it had that stickiness. Instead of going like, I shouldn't tell my mom I did drugs because I was still a very good boy. My first thought was like, I have to give this to my mother. She told me about Jesus. And I'm like, I feel like I just met the guy. I need to tell I need to tell her the good news. Ryan, the good news. It's not make-believe. It's not just the infinity stone in Vision's head. This shit is real. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He's it's fucking nuts. What what did that make you think of? You you lit up a little bit when I was talking about the Grateful Dead. Um, uh, I was thinking about religion, 
and I was thinking about what religion means. And there's a reason I subtitled my book, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Uh, religion comes from the Latin religio, to, to bind back, either to bind us back to a primordial tradition or to bind us back to the source whence we came. But in any event, it's this, it's this tying together. And again, it, it means something. And, and I think we get, we get all tied up in words like Jesus and God, um, which don't really mean anything. Um, I think that if, if the best way to define or describe religion is as an experience, like, like, like Joe Campbell says, it is the experience of being alive that people are looking for. And if we're honest, like really honest, where we get that, um, I think you do look to music and concerts. You look to sports. Like my wife um, is, can be a very interesting, engaged person, but I never see her as excited as she is when Uruguay, the country I'm in right now, is playing on the world stage for the World Cup once every four years, if they're lucky to, to make it. And she yeah. starts to jump on the couch and she becomes a, you know, it's a total bacchanalia when yeah. Uruguay's on the screen. Soccer is a religion for lots of people, mm. just like music, just like sex, um, just like looking at your infant child or your toddler child. That is a religious moment for many, many people. I would hope for all parents actually. And so I think we need to be honest, like where we sense the godness and the isness in life. And when we're being honest, that that's where it's, that's where it's coming today. It's not coming from the pews necessarily. And I think that's okay. We shouldn't be embarrassed by that. And people like Richard Rohr um, invite us to partake in that and to look to our families and the experience of universal love that we can find every moment from honeysuckle to baby Lila. That's, that's right. Thank you for that. I, I think I told you that I'm reading the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which I'm really enjoying. I've never just read it um, by itself. Uh, I've enjoyed quotes from it. Obviously, Joseph Campbell always quotes from the Gospel of Thomas uh, because he says, the kingdom of heaven will not come by expectation. You'll not say, mm. see here, see there. The kingdom of heaven is here and men do not see it. That's his, that's his go-to. But it is filled with so many incredible um, verses. And I forgot the one that I was going to say because I was, I, I had to remember the other one. <laughs> oh, uh, Yeshua, Jesus says, um, a wise man will look in the eye, not in the eyes. I'm, I'm making it more modern. He will look at a seven day old and mm. see the eternal light. And this mm. man will live. Mm. That is, again, you read this in my mushrooms chapter, the childlikeness of the experience. Um, I, I tried to do this as a bit as a standup, but it, it was just a little too weird, I think. But I was like, I know how to raise a baby because I've trip sat people. It's the <laughs> same thing. Look, like, remember when you were a kid, I bet you played with a hose, didn't you? You drank from the hose? You sprayed sure. the hose? Yeah. Uh, when's the last time you ever wanted to do that? Uh, never. Unless you've taken a psychedelic. <laughs> and then you can't believe that there's a spout Talk about living water. There's a spout that shoots water at will. You can't get enough of it. The thought of being cold or the thought of being wet is so irrelevant to you. A friend of mine told me a story of taking mushrooms on his birthday, and he just laid in a pile of seaweed, and he was as happy as he's ever been. He just piled, like buried himself in seaweed. And of course, grownups are like, that's gross. There's probably bugs in there or hose water. It's gross. It's cold. It's, it's, it tastes like uh, rubber. When I look at my daughter, I'm like, she's there. That's the, my great teacher. She's the great teaching. She, my other great gospel of Thomas, my favorite one, it reads like a joke. Jesus goes, there was a rich man 
who said, I'm going to build a silo and I'm going to plant all these fields and I'm going to fill my silos so I never have to worry again. I'll always have everything I need. And that night the man died. That is a joke. <laughs> that is a stand-up comedy setup punchline Jewish tradition classic joke that I'm like, and it ends with classic Jesus. He goes, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying like, what security? It's very Buddhist. It's like, what, what are you holding on to? You and I are talking right now and nothing is promised either of us. It's not guaranteed that I'll get through this sentence. Forget the day. This sentence. This sentence could be, I could be taken right now. Aneurysm, I'm gone. And in that urgency, you're, you brought, you're brought into the moment. This is why people near death experience tend to see that nobody is paying attention to the miracle of life um, because they, they saw how fragile it is. They were like flowers. You can get stepped on at any moment. Hmm. Hit it. I'm, I'm, med- I'm meditating, Pete. I'm meditating. <laughs> I really have to watch myself. I told you how excited I am to talk to you. Well, uh, uh, can, can I quote the great Pete Holmes? Uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> the, 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 poet, the poet laureate Pete Holmes <laughs> writes that he was blissed out and riveted in his psychedelic journey, like two giant infants appreciating the world the way only babies can. And you and I were riffing on Matthew 18.3. It sounds a lot like the idea of unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, which doesn't mean anything until you've become like a child or spent many, many years around children changing diapers and see the world through their eyes, which is kind right. of helpless, but also kind of blissed out and, right. and riveted, right. like you say. And, you know, you and I were riffing on what that means. There, there aren't many formulas. There aren't many um, keys to success in the New Testament. But the first word out of Jesus's mouth, um, at least in Matthew, um, and I think also in Mark, is metanoite. And it's, it's, it's a big concept about conversion, which is not the best way to translate metanoite. The best way to translate that is complete transformation of consciousness. And in, in other words, something happens to you that reverts you to an infant-like state of awareness that is so profound that it, it is indelibly etched onto your psyche. Um, and another word for that transformation of consciousness is strafete. And we were talking about how it literally means to turn the head. And I was blown away how in your book, you actually subconsciously or not refer to your moment of awakening as like Kermit turning his head, seeing the whole thing as a goddamn illusion and <laughs> face with Jim Henson. Can you elaborate? <laughs> Don't you dare ask me a question. I'm already embarrassed at how much my excitement is overtaking me. But yes, I mean, that's it. It, It's turning, it's changing directions. I I mean, I know you already know this, but um, that word has been translated in English as repent. And we've seen this on the sign in the New Yorker cartoon, uh, the guy in Times Square in a robe and it says repent. And we've always took that to mean uh, stop jerking off. Stop swearing. Stop watching Die Hard. Um, stop whatever you're doing. Uh, you're bad, and you're going to go to hell. And I've heard Richie translated as change. You just said the yeah. same verb, change. Change. It's Romans. If you want a Bible nerd, well, Bible nerd. Romans twelve two. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I mean, 
I, I used to like that verse because I wanted to be punk rock and it said, do not conform to the world any longer. Do not conform to the world any longer. We thought that meant stop seeing R-rated movies. Brian! What the fuck? <laughs> Look, I understand when you're in the kingdom of heaven uh, or when you're in unit of consciousness or in, you're in that rapture, you kind of don't want to watch any movies. The, the idea of watching a two-dimensional representation of something, you know, it might be fascinating, but it's not like your favorite thing. You'd rather watch the water run in your sink. You'd rather look at your baby. You'd rather go for a walk. You'd rather connect with another human in any way. You'd rather smile at a cashier. You'd rather look at an apple and, and see how, it, you know, you cut a, a orange in half and it sort of looks like a vagina. Like you start seeing how every, everything is do you, everything. Do you do that frequently? I mean, that that is a specific... There's an Instagram account that uh, basically is erotic fruit and they're showing how many vaginas show up. But, you know, I'm sure you know this. I don't think there's anything I know that you don't know. But Lee, L-I, the, the, the Chinese study of repetition in nature, when you look at like a frozen lake and you see that the cracks look like a river on a prairie, like, or you see that the branch of a tree looks like exactly like a lightning bolt. And you see that energy, just like a, a sphere of a bubble, is is the most easy uh, resistance-free shape. That there's all, everything is shaping based on gravity and, and placement and all this stuff. And you're like, of course the back of a tortoise shell looks like these boulders in front of a, a an ocean. And of course an ocean wave looks like my blood flow or whatever it might be. Like you start seeing the oneness in these visual cues, it might be a vagina in an orange or a pear or whatever, or it might be that a dog looks like a cow and a cow looks like whatever. You take that down the line all the way to humans. Um, I don't even know how we got there. Oh, <laughs> but the the fact that the divine is no less present at a um, Megadeth concert than a, you know, Michael W. Smith concert. That's the place. You, you know what I mean? Yes, the Symphony of Destruction. I'm glad we're talking about Megadeth now. It was it was about time. <laughs> Dave Mustaine was awfully upset that it took how long? 20, <laughs> 23 minutes before Dave Mustaine gets present. <laughs> the shame. But the divinity of all things. I mean, the, Ramdas has a has a riff on being crucified, and mm. he's like, "Do you think Jesus was looking at the centurion nailing him to the cross?" Do you think he was looking at him with anything but pity? They know not what they do, meaning they're unconscious, hmm. meaning they're lost in the game. They think they're Roman. Brian, they think they're Roman. That was in my book, too. I, I was in Italy and I saw a ladybug and I said, this ladybug has no idea it's Italian. That was a real breakthrough for me. I was like, this ladybug isn't Italian and I'm not. American. I am at the DMV. I am at the passport office. But that—that's the flavor of liberation, and that's well, how. That's yeah. that's a good point. That's ladybug. So ladybug here in 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 Southern Cone Spanish is San Antonio, Saint Anthony. Um, oh, wow. By, by the by, which I'm not sure that ladybugs here. Actually, one flew in my ankle yesterday, and I thought, oh, Saint Anthony is here to. <laughs> To help me send my daughters off to school, but but to close to close the 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 window on on metanoia and conversion and change, which is yeah. which is the point. Um, and I was thinking about your your quote about turning the head, kind of like peeling back the curtain, realizing 
how the gears are are turning. Um, and I was thinking about the resurrection and Easter is coming and I don't watch sports and don't have any friends. So I have lots of time to read the gospel of John and in the gospel of John, it also, it, it, it develops this theme about turning the head. And so Mary Magdalene, right? Mary Magdalene is the first witness to Christ's resurrection. Um, and Richard Rohr describes her as this, this ordinary woman who knew Jesus in the flesh. And suddenly she's confronted with the the light body Christ, right? So it's not like the dead guy got out of the cave and walked away. He burst into a kaleidoscopic rainbow of, of multicolored light and became the light body Jesus. And frozen rec- fractals all around? Frozen fractals. <laughs> how do you, but, but how does someone recognize who that is? And the Greek is really interesting in John's gospel. When, so her, her conversion her way of recognizing Jesus is by strafete, turning the head. And the verb is used twice in a row mm. in the 20th chapter of John. It says that she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And when he utters the magic phrase, when he says her name, Mariam, she turns again and says to him, Rabbi. And it's, it's there they, they establish like this supernatural communication. And I mentioned all that only to say these conversion turning the head experiences have to be something that shock the conscience. It has to be some kind of ontological shock that, that just, that wakes you up. What Richard calls the stun gun experience that any true sacrament really ought to be. There was your life before that experience. There's your life after. And the two rarely meet. I love that. Am I following you correctly that Mary Magdalene, it says she turned if I was cool, I'd say the Greek too. She turned. Welcome to one of the few spaces, Brian, where you seem like the coolest guy. I love that you're like, I have no friends. I don't like sports. I'm like, buddy, I have so few friends. I don't like sports. Welcome to your safe inner sanctum. Um, she turns, it says. Yes. And sees Christ, presumably behind her. I mean. Theore. She sees. She's a visionary. Theore, which is where we get the English theory. Theore. She sees Christ. She turns and has a visionary encounter. But then she turns again, which if we were only talking about a physical turn, should be turned 360 and be facing the wrong direction. So the first turn is an inward turn. In fact, the only important turn is the inward turn. And then the rest is probably, it could be, it doesn't matter, a metaphor. And then she turned and she saw him and talked to him and and responded to him. But you start to realize that it's that inner turn that matters. Hmm. Rob Bell has that. Did I get that right? The two turns? Because I'm going to, I'm going to be quoting that the rest of my life. So please don't send me off with that wrong. So this is John 20, 14 to 16 for those who want to look it up. Yeah. That's really, really fun. It reminds, so Rob Bell, one of my dear friends, he, he talks about Moses taking his sandals off when he sees the burning bush and he, he, his commentary is, it's not that that ground was holy. It's that he became aware that the ground was holy. The ground was already holy. But who cares? This is my point. Honeysuckle is just honeysuckle until you are converted and awaken. Not the big Buddhist awakening of, of everything, zooming out completely. I'm just saying like the mini awakening of like, wait, that's a mystery too. The real fun one for people listening is you hearing this. You ever like have someone explain to you how the ear works? There's water. There's a crystal. That's what's in your ear. There's like tiny bones holding up a crystal. It sounds like Indiana Jones. And he has to go in and get the crystal. 
Dude, my theory is the human body and the solar system are both just complicated enough that when you start explaining them, 99.9% of people will lose interest. And that just keeps the, the game working. You know what I mean? I just go, oh, hearing is a vibration. Okay. It's vibrating a liquid. What? Okay. There's water in my ear. Yeah. That's if vertigo is if you have too much water, not enough water. And then there's a crystal and then, and you're just like, fuck it. I hear shit. And that's who cares? I'm done. You know what I mean? Um, but the fact that you're hearing this, this is an auditory honeysuckle. I don't mean the words I'm saying. The fact that I'm seeing you and the effortlessness I don't get tired of looking. It it flows into me like water. It, it it's it's a it's an epiphany. Everything's an epiphany. I, I say it all the time, but Byron Katie said, if you're in your right mind, every sound is the Buddha. And that and that is just that's a psychedelic place. And I, she doesn't do psychedelics, which is super fun. <laughs> <laughs> but we live in a psychedelic world. Um yeah, yeah. epiphania is Greek for the appearance or the manifestation of stuff. And, and, and I think the greatest epiphanies are just slowing down to either smell the honeysuckle or realize that we're on this pale blue dot circling at 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. The solar system is circling 490,000 miles an hour around the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is headed towards this great attractor 150 light years away at 1,000 kilometers per second. And here we are connected on Zoom from North to South America talking about honeysuckle. I. This is it. I really think we have a deficit and like a, of energy, of almost like cosmic energy to think and to hold those ideas in us when we're at the grocery store. You know what I mean? Like it, it just gets flattened out and steam cleaned away and we just start talking about pants. And, we just, and that, that's actually what's beautiful about what you said. Let's say you just start talking about sports. Well, guess what? The hound of heaven, baby. God is waiting for you in the sports too. And he's waiting for you. Again, I'm using the metaphor of God and the and the pronoun he. It's all the mystery is waiting for you in pants as well. You know what I mean? Like it, it, you, there's no escaping it. Maybe honeysuckle isn't your thing, but I'm sure people are, are are getting a sense of connection through Snapchat, even though it's probably degrading their brain in some other way. What I'm saying is, where can you go? Where can you go that it isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere and nowhere. And this is why it's so hard to talk about God to children. I was just talking to a friend yesterday about this. Um, Like I received first communion when I was eight, eight. And my oldest daughter is now seven. And we don't talk about Catholicism all that often because it's really, really difficult to talk about the isness with a seven-year-old or a five-year-old or a toddler. And and I think this this is our challenge for talking about meaning making and myth in a world devoid of, of meaning, um, you know, but at the end, yeah, is it, is it not anywhere? Meister Eckhart says something like, the eye with which I see God is the same with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye is one eye, one sight, one knowledge, one love, big ups. And to yeah. appreciate that and live in that is actually very hard to carry moment to moment because it kind of makes you a psychopath. Um, it makes me very bad at doing dishes. It makes me very bad at doing laundry. It makes me very forgetful. But if you get caught up in the moment too much, it, you forget to become a human being again. God damn. Dude, talk about an impression of an insane person. Hmm. I feel like we, all, we know a lot of the same quotes. What you just quoted is one that I love too. Um, when they were going to um, 
execute Joan of Arc, they said, um, she said, I talked to God. And they said, that's just your imagination. And she said, how else would I talk to him? <laughs> that is simultaneously an impression, a standard impression of an insane person, and very close, razor's edge close to what we're talking about. Mm. I've been on uh, mushrooms or LSD, I forget, and had the realization that my imagination was God's imagination. And this meaning I would see something, I would see Hanuman, I would see Christ, I, whatever the image would be. And I would go, oh, that's just something I'm making up. Who? What is mind that you dismiss it as a figment of your imagination? What is imagination? You said it earlier. What is make-believe? It's all make-believe. It's all a conspiracy. This brings us back to Dionysus, kind of. Uh, it's like theater. Uh, I mean, Alan Watts is always talking, or Leela. It's all a show. It's all a play. It's all a dance. Everything is make-believe. Alan Watts even says, like, a flower is deceiving a bee. Like, there's all this deception to be like, come and uh, eat some honey. But really, it's, it's pollen, and it's going to help the, the flower out. There's all, there's all these levels of deception kind of hinting us, it's all a deception. The whole thing is deceiving itself for its own pleasure, <laughs> if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, but yeah, that's what cool. that, that that's that the makes, ancient that's the ancient what? theater of Dionysus cut into the southern slope of the Acropolis in Athens. If you have the the, the pleasure to visit, it was you know theater, entertainment, comedy. Um, all begins in this this ultimate deceptive act, which is which was nothing less than communion with the gods. And so, at the theater of Dionysus in the classical period, we're talking about twenty five hundred years ago. The idea of like makeup and wardrobe and and lines and stage props, it all comes from an attempt to communicate with the ancestors in this kind of mass hallucination. This is how Professor Ruck at Boston University describes the theater of Dionysus. And you didn't go to that theater for a hot dog and a beer. You went there to drink trima. And trima in ancient Greek means rubbed or pounded. And we think it, it refers to the different drugs that may have been pounded into that wine that you sipped on during the experience so that you became one with the actors and actresses and thereby one with the god Dionysus himself. Theater was about becoming one with God. And mm. you've taken it, Pete, and just made a mockery. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. I've, I, I'm glad this is coming up because I remember in my sort of embarrassingly cursory classics education, meaning like one day of one course, uh, you know what I mean? Like barely anything, but some general course everyone had to take. They told us that Dionysus was the god of theater and of wine. And this sticks out in my mind because I was trying to be funny. I raised my hand. And I said, well, theater requires a suspension of disbelief, and maybe the wine was there to help with that suspension of disbelief. And I remember that moment, Brian, because I was embarrassed. I got flush because I was going for this really corny laugh. I said it in a, in a like, aren't I smart sort of way. No one laughed. The professor moved on. But I didn't know until I read your book just how right, awkward, baggy, khakied Pete in college might have been that it wasn't just theater in the way that they weren't just doing the glass menagerie and they weren't just sipping on boxed Merlot. If these people were having their entire consciousness turned around, if their life was separated into before that happened and after, 
The wine probably had a lot to do with it. And and take us through, just because I have read the book, but people listening might not have read the book. Take us from the wine, the ground wine of Dionysus. And, and I love the Christ parallels with Dionysus and Jesus. Take us from that to the communion table, just because I do think that's what people people are going to want to know. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the common denominator is is Greek. And I've been saying over the past six months since the book came out, and I hope it doesn't sound uh, too haughty, but it, it is impossible to understand the birth and growth of, of Christianity without understanding the ancient Greek. And the reason I say that is because we're talking about this ancient wine and this trima. It wasn't the only magic wine splashing around the ancient world. There were lots of different potions splashing around. Um, And to understand that is to understand how some of this pagan visionary wine could have made its way, maybe did make its way into early Christianity. How one son of God, born of a virgin with this magical sacrament Dionysus became another son of God, born of a virgin, whose blood becomes our spiritual drink, we say mm. in the Catholic Mass. Mm. Um, and the, the, the common... wear purple, right? I mean, there's... <laughs> exactly. And they both wear purple and they both have crowns of thorns. Um, and they're, they're both... One is the, the, the goat of God. The other is the lamb of God. They both have this intense association with the vine. It's only in John's gospel that Jesus refers to himself as the true vine. And, and Greek is sort of the thing that combines these two worlds. So the, the New Testament is written in Greek. You know, Paul basically writes like half the New Testament, his letters to Greek-speaking communities all around the ancient world. It was Greek. They could have written in Hebrew or Aramaic, but it comes to us in the Greek. And the Greek language and Greek culture is the, is the, the environment, the ambiance in which Christianity is born. And I think it's important to point out that that ancient wine looked nothing like the wine of today. And what I often call like the most overlooked question of the past 2000 years, when, when Christ is there at the table of the last supper that you see in Da Vinci's painting with his 12 mates and they're drinking from these goblets, what was in those goblets? We have zero archeological evidence for the wine that was used at the last supper. Um, This is why we call it the grail. This is why it became stuff of legend and lore. And this is why Indiana Jones goes off and hunt of the grail because it's, it's, it's so magical, so sacred. It's the axis point for Western civilization. Um, And I I just watched last crusade. I'm a last crusade guy. Uh, Some of my friends are temple of doom, but you know, they call their mothers ma. I called my mom, mom. So I'm a crusade guy. (laughs) And in that movie, I think it's extra biblical. You'll know they talk about catching Christ's blood from the cross into the into the grail. And right. I'm like, I don't remember reading that in the gospel. Is that mythological? Yeah, that happens in the medieval lore. Joseph of Arimathea apparently catches it. So there's one of two things. It's either the, the, the chalice that caught Jesus's blood at the foot of the cross, or it was the grail that was used on the table of the Last Supper. Or in both. the movie, it's both. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's both. Or... I don't want to jump to the the conclusion, but if you to quote the great Dr. Marcus Brody in Indiana Jones, the search for the cup of Christ is oh. the search for the divine in all of in us. In all of us. When he said that, Val and I paused it. This is I don't mean to give us too much credit, because you heard it too. But this is what Jesus is saying when he's like, if you have ears to hear, something changes when you wake up to these ideas. You start to go like George Lucas is involved in that movie. George Lucas loved Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell loved this idea. And we're like, holy fuck. It's right there in plain English that 12-year-old Pete saw in the theater. He was sitting next to his parents 
We all heard him say the, cur- the search for the Holy Grail is the search for Christ in all of us. Uh, and I was like, what did we make of that? We were just like, <laughs> that, that kooky guy. Talk about hidden in plain sight. You know what I mean? Talk about it being the smell of a honeysuckle. It's as close as your as the air on your skin. It's so obvious sometimes. Talk about hidden in plain sight. And I'm getting back to the wine. Yeah. The largest painting in the largest art museum in the world at the Louvre is Paolo Veronese's The Wedding Feast at Cana. And there you have Jesus doing his doing his thing, which is transforming water into wine, which the only occurs his first miracle in John's gospel. Um, unique it's, only, John, it's only in John. Only in John's gospel. Um, does not appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and what is John trying to communicate to people? And again, John's is the last gospel we think to be written towards the end of the first century AD. What is he saying with this water to wine? And this is why the Greek matters. I can't imagine a Greek ear anywhere in the ancient Mediterranean hearing that story and not immediately thinking of Dionysus because for centuries before that moment, um, the water to wine thing was a thing in ancient Greece. In Elis, for example, uh, this Greek district on the Western Peloponnese, Pausanias tells us in the ancient sources that the priests would approach the temple of Dionysus, leave water basins in the temple overnight, come back the next day, miraculously transformed to wine. Not only that, this would occur on the Epiphany, the Epiphania, the manifestation, January 5th and January 6th, the same date today that, at least in the Catholic tradition, we celebrate the Epiphany. Um, wow. uh, this is Jesus's great coming out party. So, so these traditions were there for centuries and centuries. And again, you have to ask, what is John communicating when Jesus, at the end of the party, because everyone's already shit-faced, Jesus says, what this party really needs is 180 gallons of more wine because <laughs> we're having a great time. Mom's mixing it up. There's some great jokes going around, but a couple hundred gallons of wine to really top this thing off. And that's yeah. Jesus. This is, this, is the, this is the Jesus that John tells us about. And Jesus is later called an oinopotes in Greek, a drunkard, a wino by the Pharisees. Um, so he was into drinking. And we have to ask, what was the, what was the concept here? Was this intoxication by alcohol um, and, and what's happening here. The Greeks had no word for alcohol. It's also important to remember. So alcohol comes from the Semitic languages, alcohol. Um, the, the Greeks had no concept of fermented grapes causing intoxication. So I like to say that, that Dionysus was not just the god of wine, but the god of intoxication and maybe the god of psychedelics. And we can say that with a straight face because we have sources from the first century AD at the exact same time the Gospels are being written, like Dioscorides, who includes 56 detailed recipes for mixing all kinds of crazy shit into wine, including things we would today call psychedelics. Like he he talks about black nightshade in the Greek um, producing visions. Fantasias u aedais, he says in Greek, which is not unpleasant visions. So the Greeks had pharmacology. That's not up for debate. The debate is when that pagan wine comes into Christianity, what kind of wine was it? And and there comes John going, you know, dude, I always was told that um, Christmas was a way of saying, hey, solstice celebrators, we're going to have that too. I had no idea that it might be way deeper than that. It's not just like, hey, we'll smooth over your holidays and you can still celebrate them. It's like, we'll still celebrate 
your rites, potentially. We'll do the same ceremonies. Which, by the way, if you've had these things, why would you take the engine out of your new car? <laughs> it makes no sense to be like... Why can you get Flintstones? Just Flintstone cars yeah. everywhere. And you said, you, brilliantly in the book, you talk about um, Odysseus in the Odyssey, there being recipes, sort of like Terrence McKenna's book, these recipes that are sort of boring to us. Why take the effort? I also want to talk about the um, Salem Witch Trials, but because I'm not going to forget, do you mind if I pee real quick? <laughs> I do. You got to sit right there. You got to sit right there. 30 seconds. Okay. I um, Thank you for that. I, uh, I was a reenactor in Salem. Uh, it was what, my first acting job. Um, and there, were, there was so much discord to this day on what happened at the witch trials. But reading your book, reading about um, the Odyssey, um, really made me go like, there is a theory that it's ergot, that, it's, that it was in the wheat, um, that they, they ate it by accident. Reading your book, it seemed much more likely that I don't, the term witches might not be appropriate, but sorceresses, uh, people in the know, made these potions. They asked them, the, the women would say they would go to Boston, which was quite a haul from Salem, Salem Village. And they say, how do you get there? And they'd say, we sit on brooms and are there presently, which means instantly and and I remember the the theory being well they were some maybe administering this potion on a broom perhaps as a as a dildo sort of thing or some other way who knows but that's where we get brooms and that's where we but I mean like the the potionness of it I was like of course I mean I had to give those testimonies somebody was sitting on my chest I woke up and I saw a little uh, monkey creature jump in my room an apple flew around the room somebody went out a window that was only open an inch uh, from top to bottom what do you have it? I know that's not your area of expertise but when you start seeing what you're laying out in the book you start seeing it everywhere every fairy tale every movie every story every religion and then uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that I, I can't get past the fact that your first acting gig was... <laughs> 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 There's only one photo that exists. I think it's on the internet. It's me and uh, knee socks that were soccer socks. Uh, I, I didn't hear anything else that came out of your mouth. Witches. Witches. Yeah, go ahead. Um yeah, I mean, this the, the they go back a long. I mean, centuries and centuries. I mean, the, the founding document of Western literature, the Iliad and Odyssey, features a witch named Circe. Um, my friend Madeline Miller writes a beautiful book about about Circe, which everybody should should see. Um, but you know, she's she's this famous character uh, from deep antiquity. And what is she known for, if anything, but her pharmaca lugra, which is the mixing up of baneful drugs into wine. So once again, from the very mm. beginning. Mm. Wine is never just wine. From the very beginning of the ancient Greek, wine is doctored in the hands of this pharmacological prowess that is Circe um, with all kinds of things, whether that is magical plants that Dioscorides is later writing about 700 years later, 
Um, or maybe it's the reason wine is routinely referred to as pharmacon, which is where we get the word pharmacy drug. I mean, that is the word that's used for wine for like over a thousand years from home <laughs> to the end of the Roman Empire. And it's not an accident. And it's not an accident either that St. Ignatius of Antioch at the end of the first century AD refers to the Eucharist as the pharmacon athanasias, the drug of immortality. Now, maybe that's just fancy wordplay, and it probably is, but it speaks to a tradition of witchy doctored potions that have been in these ancient sources for centuries and centuries. And classicists know about this stuff and nerds who don't watch sports know about this stuff. But scientists at like MIT are now going out into the field and finding these doctored wines from antiquity, from ancient Egypt and from the Canaanite period. And I spent 12 years hunting around footnotes for a study in Pompeii, the first century AD, the same time Dioscorides is writing about all these witchy plants, the same time the first generation of Christians was landing on the Italian peninsula. There, miraculously preserved against all odds in the Villa Vesuvio, was this witchy wine that looked to be spiked with uh, opium, cannabis, henbane, and black nightshade. Uh, So, and lizards and toads and frogs. So there was some really witchy stuff splashing around the territory that would become the seat of of Christendom. Wow. And then we get, I mean, it's funny that it's taking me this long to ask you about immortality. Jesus talks a lot about, you know, dying before you die. And is it at Eleusis where it says, if you die before you die, is that where the inscription is? That comes from uh, Mount Athos in, in Greece, actually. Um, uh, an, an pethanis, prin pethanis, denta pethanis, otan pethanis. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. And it sounds very similar, you know, to some of Jesus's parables, you know, the wheat, if the wheat cracks, he's also talking about wheat, which is fun, um, <laughs> which is where we get ergot. But if the wheat cracks and dies, then it has a chance to grow again. The whole idea of being born again even people not raised in the Christian tradition, we are, we've already sort of discussed, have these plant experiences, and they divide their lives into two parts, before it and after it. You might call that a conversion, or a change, or a shift in consciousness. So the death that people describe a lot of times on psychedelics is an ego death. I'm reminded Ramdas's first uh, mushroom trip, um, his body vanished. He described it as a bad trip. His his entire body vanished. First, he saw all of his identities manifest in front of him. Then they vanished, and then his body, his current manifestation, also vanished. And he and he so he really felt like he had died. Um, but then you realize you're dead, but you're still there. So what is still there must be what you really are. And that am I in the ballpark of dying before you die? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the great ego dissolution that's talked about in the mystical literature across all the great faiths and that, that Jesus is almost certainly referring to, again, in John's gospel, when he talks about being born again. You must be born again before you can see God's kingdom. There, there, there's something behind this. Meister Eckhart also talks about this concept of self-nullification, self-annihilation. Uh, the poet Rumi talks about if you could get rid of yourself, um, even for a second, um, the secret of secrets would be available to you in 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 uh, Jewish mysticism. There's this concept of the ayin, the divine nothingness. And so, I mean, again and again, we come back to this concept of when it comes to God, when it comes to the mystery of being, 
um, when it comes to the isness, there's nothing to learn. There, there's, there's, there's no book, there's no sermon, there's nothing you need to do. It's not supposed to be difficult. It is a process of unlearning, right? Like the, the, the great uh, Christian mystic poem, The Cloud of Unknowing. It's this idea of it's all present within. And the, the goal, the, the key to unlock is one of these near-death mystical experiences that somehow opens the floodgates to heaven so that like Thomas Merton, you can just sit there and say that the gates of heaven are everywhere. Um, and there's okay. lots of ways to do that, but you know, uh, psychedelics seem to be one of these super potent, reliable ways of doing so. Which it's super funny that you say Merton, because he was just on a street corner uh, watching the people go by shopping. So that's sort of like a modern, you know, I wrote down, did Paul trip? You know, we, we, we say fall off your donkey Bible nerds like us like to point out that it doesn't say there was a donkey uh, or that it was a donkey. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Usually I can say that with full confidence, but talking to you, I have to be uh, on my guard. Um, so it's sort of not even a question of did Paul drink the pharmacon or whatever? Did he drink the wine? Because these things can happen to us in other ways. So I was reading this before our, our call here. Um, so uh, Thomas said, Master, my mouth could never utter what you are like. Yeshua told him, I am no longer your master because you have drunk and become drunken from the same bubbling source from which I spring. So that's the Gospel of Thomas, verse uh, chapter 13. Um, okay. Uh, could they be talking about the pharmacon? Sure. Could they be saying, as so many others have said, that your being is bubbling up from inside of you, your Atman, your soul, is like a spring of eternal life flowing inside of you. It's, it seems like it's both. You know what I mean? Uh, is Jesus saying that, you know, communion is symbolic and it's this, pharma, uh, and it's this hallucinogen? There's open, there's, there's juice in both. You know what I mean? In the mm. same way you could get a deep meaning from the Santa Claus myth, even though that might not be literally true or even close to the point. I guess what I'd love to hear you talk about is like the availability of this message of this revelation to those who aren't doing drugs. That seems to be sort of, on one hand, I can hear myself thinking you have to taste it. You have to, like Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom unless you are born again. But then I'm like, are there ways to be born again without taking these plants? Um, there must be ways to be born again. It happens. It happens all the time. I mean, it happens in in ways you know, big and small. It happens again, staring into the eyes of your infant. It, it, it happens witnessing the birth of your children. It happens witnessing death if you're fortunate enough to witness the passing of a soul. Um, it can happen on a street corner. It can happen smelling the honeysuckle. But but I, but. There are these moments and there are these times and Jesus talks about this. And this is this is the point of sacramental theology in the Catholic Church. Like we have sacraments for a reason. You know, it's not just enough to believe in Jesus or to accept the Lord as your savior and your buddy. Um, it's not just enough to pray to him or to worship him. In John's gospel, especially my favorite gospel, you know, there there is the promise of immortality through the consumption of flesh and blood. And it's weird and it can't be ignored. And it, it's so weird that, you know, John's, John's Eucharist is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it doesn't take place indoors. They're not reenacting the ceremony in real time. J 
Jesus is just talking about the concept of devouring his flesh and guzzling his blood. And the Jews assembled at Capernaum listening to this for the first time. In John 6.60, they say, skleros. Like, what the hell is this? This ain't Jewish. This is cannibalism. This is straight up cannibalism. But Jesus couldn't be any more clear when he says that unless, and it's very clear in the Greek, unless you feast on my flesh and drink my blood, um, you're not alive. Um, and for those who do, which means whoever, anybody, whoever eats, munches on my flesh, trogon, to munch on my flesh, whoever chews my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. It's in the present tense in Greek, eche, has eternal life. Not they do go to an afterlife, not they are saved. They have right here, right now, they have tasted immortality. And it's the same concept you find in, in Thomas's gospel in, in saying 108. Uh, Jesus says, whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become that person. This is the whole promise of the incarnation is that is that you are Christ and you become Christ by consuming Christ. And so maybe you can meditate your way towards salvation. Um, maybe there are lots of different archaic techniques for doing that sleep deprivation, um, you know, tattooing, scarification, etc. But Jesus does talk about a sacrament. He does talk about consuming him. And it's hard to believe that was Welch's grape juice. <laughs> and just believing really hard. Just, <laughs> just really hoping that it, you're doing it right, which so much of my early faith was that. You talked about McKenna and his involuntary verbal experiments. That's speaking in tongues. I, I remember praying for that. I just wanted proof that something was happening. Um, and it wasn't until I feel like I ate the flesh that I had the proof. Um, hmm. I hear Jesus saying a faithless generation asks for a sign, but like it's not, it's not asking for a sign. It's almost like I wonder if there's a correlation between grace and and these these plants because they feel like grace they feel like the embodiment of like here's a gift you haven't earned it it doesn't check if you're a good person it just it just floods you with with this experience well and more it's a, it's a gratuitous grace what does carl Rahner said that the you know the it's the self communication of god grace is the self communication of God, which if you take panentheism to its logical extreme, it is available in ordinary bread and wine and the gaze of a young infant, but it's also available in the plants, herbs, and fungi that have co-evolved with us for 500 million years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's in everything, but it's especially in this. I know that's a paradox, but if you're not comfortable with paradox, I don't think religion is for you. <laughs> Well, here is the question that you're probably tired of. Are you, are you thinking about it? <laughs> um, I mean, are you, I know you're beyond curious. You're beyond curious uh, because curiosity produced this book. Nobody is scouring footnotes for 16 years if you don't have. And I would, I, I would say that when you read Dina's story or in the foreword, the stories of, of a serpent wrapping around you and, and, and undulating love and acceptance and all that stuff, those stories can sort of 
activate something in you. So like, I don't think you're, let's say this, you haven't been there, but you've looked at the map so much. Like you've looked at like 3D Oculus Rift Google (laughs) Maps that when you go there, if you do, um, only the penitent man will pass. Like you've, you've, you've humbled yourself. You've shown the respect, like the, just taking a handful of pills at the uh, uh, gathering of the juggalos. Maybe that is fine, but like, you've definitely lowered yourself and, and showed your reverence and all these wonderful things. I just have to think you haven't since you've written the book. Have you? No, no. Still have it. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> After 13 years of Catholic school, and four years with the Jesuits, you begin to carry around a lot of guilt. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the, the, the blessing from, from Pope Pete means a lot to me. I will, you know, part, of, part of me is looking for a blessing from, from Jorge Borgoglio. Um, I'd love, I'd love to, to talk about this with Pope Francis. Um, and I'd love to talk about this with, with Christian leaders around the world writ large, because I, I do think there's something here. I'm not trying to prove that psychedelics were the key to the birth and development of Christianity. What I'm saying is that it's at least possible that some of the earliest Greek-speaking communities availed themselves of what appears to me to be really sophisticated biotechnology. And I would like for that not to be a heretical statement. And I would like to engage in contemplative practice that reincorporates something that may have brought significant inspiration, if not to the earliest generations of Christians, then almost certainly to the crazy pagans who preceded them in ancient Greece and gave birth to what we call this Western experiment. Um, I do think there is a place for psychedelics in modern Christianity. Um, And I think if it's anywhere, it's probably in the religious orders. It's probably with the Jesuits who, who educated me and were the whole reason I went to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college because of Latin and Greek and the Jesuits. And I like deeply respect them for that. Um, And part of me doesn't want to offend the Jesuits or the Richard Rohrs of the world or the Dominicans or the Carthusians or the Carmelites. And part of me kind of is looking for a sacred container to do this in a way that, that does show like my genuine reverence for this stuff. I respect this so much that I've abstained from it. And I see the value so much in what this could mean for the reenchantment of Christianity um, that I'd rather have a conversation and develop that container afterwards, if that makes sense. I mean, everything you're saying makes sense. I, boy, I don't want to hold your feet to the fire, but is it possible that it's an ego defense? It's an egoic defense, meaning we're talking about the death of an ego. So the ego is going like, really, uh, we'll do it when we could do this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I had a dream three nights ago that somebody handed me. I remember it was my friend, Jeremiah Watkins, who I don't know. I don't think he's ever done a drug in his life, but he handed me these pills and he said, it's LST. It's called HTP. And I was like, I remember that because it sounded like HTTP, like HTML. And, um, he gave me these HTP pills. And in the dream, I was like, what day is it? And they're like, it's Thursday. And I was like, oh, I have a podcast tomorrow. Because if you ever do do it, 
you want a good day or two afterwards to recoup. No podcasting the next day. You, you, you just don't want anything. Oh, buddy, don't get me started on Pete's tips for tripping. <laughs> nothing in your pockets, comfortable pants, uh, and you want nothing to do the next day. But in the dream, I didn't do them because I said um, I have responsibilities tomorrow. And then I woke up and I went, fuck, I should have taken them because I was dreaming. And if you've ever taken psychedelics in a dream, have you? In a dream? Yeah. Actually, I have. Yeah, I have. There you go. That's and weird. did it did it work for you? You're the first person who ever asked me that. Um, and it did it did see something weird did happen. I'm just this was like nine years ago. Yeah. Get fucking into it. <laughs> <laughs> because Brian, when I take psychedelics in a dream, they work. Wow. And that is insane. And you, and so you did it in a dream. And I knew, just to cap my story, but I'm much more interested in your nine years ago thing. I wish I had because I would have had a very cool dream. Um, because everything in that space that's possible here, I can just will it to happen and ecstasy and beauty and all these things. So like the story I said from the Gospel of Thomas, the guy who's like, I'll put all my wheat in a silo. And then he died that night. Um or Buddha saying the mistake you make is thinking you have time. There is an argument to make of like, this is the dream and I'm handing you HTP. <laughs> and I don't want you to, you know, wake up uh, in the next life and go, fuck, why didn't I do that while I was there? Um, what happened in the dream? Do you remember? I, I remember the sky turning into a kaleidoscope of, primary colors that merged with my body and merged with the forest in which I was a mere passenger. And then I fell on the ground and then I woke up. I mean, I know you study the classics, but that's a classic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it. It's straight out of the Beatles. It's straight out of the road to Damascus. You were collapsed in beauty. And I think that's a really, you know, people that do these things, and this is not the persuasion part. I'm not, I don't, obviously I couldn't talk you into it, but they always say that these things have a way of coming to you. You know, they come to you. Mm-hmm. And that and that was the regret of the dream was somebody handed it to me. Have people handed me psychedelics before that I've said no? Many times. <laughs> Because I am sort of conservative. I know I talk about them a lot on this podcast, but I have a lot of reverence. I I wonder, you know, MAPS says that a small dose is sometimes more disillusioning uh, to people. But the, the number 35, 35 micrograms of LST is unbelievably mild and gentle, but still enough for you to go like, oh, you get a little of that troll the the laughy troll that's just like what are you afraid of like i told you to come here <laughs> I mean, only so that i can write in my autobiography in 30 years a former reenactor of the salem witch trial <laughs> i might take you up on this offer well you know the beatles story right no the beatles so it was at the height of lsd and there was so much paranoia 
Um, this is where you get the stories of somebody jumped off the roof. They thought they could fly and all this stuff. Or I grew up with the belief, I'm sure you did, we're similar ages, that if you take LSD seven times, you're insane um, or whatever it might be. So there was this sort of counter campaign happening. Um, some true, some not true. I can't speak to it. But there was a lot of paranoia about it. And they're the Beatles. And they're in, they're with their German friend, uh, the artists, that German couple. I forget their name. And they dosed them. They put it in their iced tea. So everybody, or their water. Everybody drank their water. And, you know, it takes about an hour to kick in. And then after dinner, he was like, there's so much negative stuff. I wanted you guys to take it while you were in a good place, having a nice dinner with friends. But I, I don't know how you break this news. I want you to know I put LSD in your drink. Um, but in the George Harrison documentary, the Martin Scorsese one, he tells the story quite fondly. I wouldn't want to be dosed. I wouldn't dose anybody ethically. But there is something about like, I told you in my book, Amy Schumer told me that it was like weed, that it was like marijuana. And no, it's not. <laughs> No, no, it's not. If you wanted, have you ever smoked marijuana? Uh, I have, yes. Um, very, very strong sativas. They have a sativa called LSD. I smoked that once and I was in New York and I was in the park and I was looking at the grass and the grass started like going, hi. And I was like, that is why marijuana is a, is a psych psychedelic. It's a psychotropic or whatever. Yeah, but that's as close as I've come, getting somewhere trippy with with weed. Well, the grass talking to you would certainly do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, more interestingly, the Jesuits. I, I'm interested. Maybe we should have started with this. Forgive me, but like we well we have thirty more minutes or so. But um, are people still listening? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Absolutely not. Um, what if you didn't have my Kermit turning his head and seeing Jim Henson, which is what reignited my interest in religion? Where did your fervor come from? And I and I, I want I want you to know when you say I don't want to do psychedelics because I'd like the Pope to say it was okay. You're in such good company. There's no there's no judgment whatsoever. There's complete understanding, in fact. It took a lot for me to get over that. Luckily, I could be like, I'm divorced. I'm doing whatever the fuck. And that was a strange gift. I was like, well, I'm off the reservation, so I might as well just do what everybody does at a music festival. But I needed that too. I needed to lose my faith to feel safe, to do what very well may be the cornerstone, maybe the rock that the builder rejected. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can hear the drumbeat. <laughs> so where where did your zeal come from? I, I admire your your mind is like a diamond and your passion is is contagious. Why the meaning of life? So many people are fine to just say I'm carbon, I'm born and I die. And you're going, wait, what what are the mysteries? How does it tie to my faith? What is your faith? How does your faith look now? All of those questions. Well, what did you say about the tesseract in the forehead? Um yeah. An hour and a half ago. So, <laughs> I felt passive aggressive, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yes. An hour and a half ago. So uh, because nobody's listening, I will admit that when I was five years old, I had something of a near-death experience. 
And I point to my head because um, I can see the scar to this day right there. So there, there's a quarter size hole in my cranium uh, to this, to this day, because I was five years old at the time and too young, they thought for like a metal plate or something. Um, my older brother accidentally uh, struck me in the noggin with a nine iron golf club. Oh and my gosh. I lost tons of blood and was rushed to the hospital and had some uh, crazy experiences, uh, which didn't really make sense until I was a teenager. And then the Jesuits, the, the Jesuits. Wait, what were they? Are you going to tell me what the experiences were? Um, we can we can talk about that for sure. <laughs> I'm in therapy. <laughs> I was just going to say, I did not lure you here to therapize you, but I have lived in regret. Gary Shandling did this podcast, and he said, we were talking about this very question, and he was like, and then I had some experiences, and then he kept going, and he never got back to it, and I was like, fuck it. Anytime people say that, I jump right in. You have to tell me what those experiences were. You don't have to. I'd love it, though. So my my exit card from having to tell you those details is the word homunculus. I asked Mark Manson, uh, who I think you've talked to, the, the great author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I've, I've met him. I asked him for a funny word, and he mentioned homunculus. And so he told me to pass the word homunculus to you if ever I wanted an exit ramp off the conversation. Um, so- <laughs> card. Can you? Well, guess what? Uh, I don't give a fuck, so it's not working. Here's 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 how I'm going to respect your boundary and uh, give me a flavor, if you will. These experiences were in regards to your perception of reality. Yeah, I'm just messing around. Um, so- <laughs> oh, good. We'll just get the real story. So I'm there, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Zeus and Thor are surrounding me. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by, by, by beings at some point. I mean, I, I, I go into this twilight phase and, and I go under anesthesia and it's, it's kind of this dissociative thing where I'm not sure where my body is in relation to the me that is beginning to grow and, and a me begins to grow. And I attribute what happens next to like a dream, like for, for, for many, many years, and I don't know, maybe it was a dream, um, but, you know, I'm, I have very vivid dreams about going into a courtroom and having conversations with people who look older and wiser than myself um, about the nature of life and death and things that, you know, a five-year-old isn't really equipped to handle. Um, and it kind of sits there. And I remember coming out of the hospital with this giant kind of Smurf hat on, um, which I had to wear for several weeks. I had 88 stitches in my head. And I remember watching the Goonies with my grandfather when I got home. And the Goonies to me became like, this is hard to explain. It became a weird portal into this mystic adventure I thought that I'd had in the hospital. And so for me, the the Goonies hunt for treasure became like my hunt for the missing ingredient that had been lent to me at the hospital um, because things, things were communicated to me. I didn't know how to put together. And it wasn't until I was 17 and on retreat with the Ignatians um, and doing these Jesuit exercises that I was like shot in the heart with what felt like a cosmic zapper gun of love. And I realized that the meaning of life has to do with 
cosmic love and maybe the Beatles were right and this is all we need. Um, and that was kind of the message I got when I was five. And that, that's really hard to explain. And when I hear people like Dinah Baser talk about being bathed in God's love, I may have never done drugs, but I know what it feels like to be bathed in God's love. I mean, you died before you died. In such a much more visceral and literal extreme way than anyone would ever dare to when you're so small and it's so physical and real. And then you meet a council that start downloading these things. You're not the only person. Um, Rob, uh, Rob Bell had a, a head injury. Um, mm. He was, um, I believe he was, what's it called when you're, neither of us are going to know, but you're standing on a, a wakeboard and you're getting pulled by a, a speedboat. <laughs> I, like, I like that neither of us knows this. We're not going to know. <laughs> We're not sure. going to know. Tow boating? Tow boating? <laughs> So he was, he was toe-boating and he flipped down and hit his head. And he he's told the story to me. I think he told it to me on this podcast too, that after that brain injury, he ate a burrito and he called it the eternal burrito. Hmm. And he saw, he experienced zapper gun that the burrito was everything. Talk about when you get close to this Joan of Arc, you start sounding like an insane person. But <laughs> panentheism, the burrito's everything. And he was experiencing the eternity in every layer of the burrito. So it was an eternity of the flour, it was an eternity of the rice, an eternity of the beans, and etern- and he was experiencing his passing through the burrito. I'm adding color to this, almost like the way that we perceive going through time. You know, like we're we're going through, if, if all of reality is a big gelatinous mound and we're these little mites burrowing our way through it and that's what our perception of a life is, he was going through the burrito and having that same sort of epiphany from a head injury. Wow. Um, I'm sure you've seen the, the TED Talk or the book, My Stroke of Insight. Or, um, so she had a stroke. You're both and, Taylor. Yes, and went into her right brain and her right brain is that childlike place. No reason. It's why we don't pee the bed at night, but it's also why we're not fascinated when we wash our hands. So she went into that, I might pee in the bed place, but she also was fascinated by everything. So I'm just so, it's like a mitzvah. I'm happy for you that you had this experience because I think you, I feel like you've up-leveled everybody. Yes, there's plants that can give us the nine iron to the head experience, but I really feel like you were given this gift. It's incredible. And then, and then the Jesuits helped you find language for it? Um, this is what the Jesuits do. Yeah, the Jesuits are, I mean, I have nothing but like, this sounds weird, but just a, a really positive experience with Christianity. Um, I mean, I, again, they, they, they gave me the scholarship to, to go to this all boys prep school that I otherwise couldn't have afforded, obviously. And I'm learning Latin and Greek. And in addition to Latin and Greek, they kind of pull the rug out from under me four years later and tell me the whole point behind everything. And I've been reading the New Testament in Greek, and there I am on, on retreat. And the Jesuits are talking about the universal Christ, for lack of a better phrase. And they're, they're, they're talking about things that I didn't hear in the Sunday service. And they're talking about this mystical version of Christianity that, like we've been talking about, is kept alive in these religious orders. And this has been the constant tension across the past 2,000 years between the mystics and the bureaucrats that I write about in the book. And that brother David Steindl Rosh, the Benedictine monk, talks about but it, it's there with the jesuits too obviously um you know they they were the first ones 
to tell me to question the faith. They were the first mm-hmm. ones to tell me to ask big questions about this stuff. So whether drugs or not, um, you know, there, there's a lot of forward thinking, deep mystical brothers and sisters out there um, who, who read the Christ the, the very same way that Richard Rohr does. And I think, I honestly think makes, makes a lot of sense to, to young people or, or could make a lot of sense. Yeah. For some reason that reminds me, <clears throat> I forget the guy's name. It's something Native American. He's a, he, he was a born a white man, but I, I think he might have studied Native American religion. So he has a name like Wolf something. I know. How embarrassing. But it really is something Wolf. And he um, he talks about teen suicide, right? And he's like, we see so much teen suicide. And he's like, what I wish someone would explain to teenagers that want to jump off a bridge is it's like part of you does jump off the bridge. Like you do part of you needs to die. Like there's something so much more dangerous and I'll even say sexy or exciting or adventurous to the spiritual journey mm. that, that gets lost at a, at a dire cost. Meaning that impulse you feel that it's all bullshit or that something needs to give is correct and then misinterpreted to its extreme. But like in the spiritual sense, there is a dying and a rebirth. And that's what, and that's what we're seeing. I mean... So the experience that you had was when you were on your way to the hospital? That's how it happened? No, the, the way I remember it was like under anesthesia or, or as I was on the bed about to go under, I remember choosing the root beer flavored anesthesia. And then I remember going into this, this, this twilight sensation. And I still remember it as a, as a dream. And I remember waking up with a shot and those images were there circling in my head with like... Um, vibrancy like kind mm. of almost like almost like ptsd just like like super vivid recall of things that didn't seem like an ordinary dream right and the fact that you're five and you conjured up the same you know what i mean it's, it's very collective unconscious it's like there's you said greek gods and and jesus and wise people and what a it's just so fun so of course the pilot light was lit for you to get your leather jacket and your fedora and your whip (laughs) (laughs) and nothing else and (laughs) and you're looking for your infinity stone you're looking for the pearl of great price because you tasted it and once you've tasted you can't untaste you know it's it's you know we we would take that as salvation. It's like once we used to say, in my sort of very surface level understanding of Christianity, that once you were saved, you couldn't you couldn't go back. Mm-hmm. That was just something we told ourselves because we wanted to go to heaven. But it seems to me when a conversion takes place by whatever means, an eternal burrito after a, a, a ski boat accident, or a nine iron to the head, or the kukion or whatever. Mm. Um, there are things that we can't come back from. Really, really fascinating. This is the mysteries. And, and, and I think, I mean, I start, you know, artificially 12, 13,000 years ago in the book. I, I try and find the earliest remnants of sacramental beer that maybe come from the Near East. But this is a tradition, um, this, this conscientious entering into of death rebirth. This could be something that goes back tens of thousands of years. It could be hundreds of thousands of years. It could precede our species, for all we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is this really is the great mystery of mysteries. But the, the you know to die before you die is a concept that you will find in in almost all the mystical literature. It transcends religion. It transcends language. 
it transcends time and space. And there's a reason I call the book The Immortality Key, uh, which really makes it difficult to write a sequel because I think that's uh, I think that 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 could be part of answering the mystery of existence. Right. And what do we mean by immortality? I think that's a fun question. We're saying we have it now. The Greek was the present tense. Um, and, and Dina, in her psilocybin trip in the early chapters of the book, says every moment is its own eternity. Again, mm. that's something Rob explained. I believe it's in um, Love Wins. It might be in what we talk about when we talk about God. But he says eternity doesn't start when you die. We're mm. in eternity now. And eternal life doesn't start when you die. You experience and have and are eternal life now. So when you lose your identity, you know, there's there's a meditation that I would recommend. It's by Muji. Do you know Muji? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He has, it's, on, it's in the iTunes bookstore. It's called An Invitation to Freedom, which sounds like the immortality key. It's about 25 minutes. And he basically, you should still do it, even though I'm going to tell you the point of it is he points out that being can only be recognized by being. You know what I mean? It's like he acquaints you with the idea of life being being, and he really sinks you into that. And then he, the big punchline is, how are you noticing that? If you're noticing a non-phenomenal uh, vibration or whatever, then you must be part of it. And that is, in a sense, the unborn and the infinite. Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about immortality? We're certainly not when, – when we had the fountain of youth or the Holy Grail, we drink of it and we never die. Of course, we took that as like you, Brian, will never die and you get to invest in any company and make a killing over a thousand years. Um, but we're talking about the realization that what you think you are, you are not. Which is a cosmic realization. I think it's it's a proper skeptical investigation into the nature of the soul and the underlying structure of the cosmos and what it means to be this individual particulate of consciousness and how that relates to the greater whole. Not in any, in any abstract way, but I mean, to actually experience that, again, to quote Joseph Campbell, is the experience of immortality. And, you know, any, he says that like any, any, any God that is not transparent to transcendence is is an idolatry i mean so to think about god is almost immediately to get it wrong right mm. anytime we're caught up in in you know rational intellectual discursive thought we're kind of getting it wrong we're nowhere near breaking through the paradox that is transcending the categories of being and non-being so to think about god is to get it wrong and so in these experiences uh, Joseph Campbell talks about eternity is that dimension of the here and now that thinking in time cuts out and mm. it's different from everlasting. You know this very well from his conversations with Bill Moyers. But, you know, everlasting is the concept of time going on and on and on. 13.7 billion years from the bang until either the big explosion or the big crunch. Who knows? But, you know, everlasting is just a long time. Whereas eternity has nothing to do with time, nothing to do with thinking, nothing to do with the left brain, nothing to do with being mortal and human. It has to do with touching, tasting that dimension of here and now. And people who've taken psychedelics talk about that the ancient mystics talk about that i think this was part of the celestial vision at eleusis conjured by whatever means and i do think that this was at least part of the visionary encounter um, in early christianity and it, it does show up um, in the gospel of thomas for example he says you know the, the kingdom of the heaven is spread upon the earth and we do not see it that if, if only we could heal our vision 
turn the head, have a metanoia, experience this radically altered change in consciousness, would we realize that it's all one thing, you know? Mm. And that sounds hippy-dippy and overly mystical, but I think that is the sense of eternity that these mysteries keep propelling us toward. And what grace and what fun, to make it not religious, that I now have fermented enough to come to a place where I can sort of get that sensation that I'm understanding. And what a joy it is to see you doing that too. And that leads me to my question, like you really can talk about it so well. And Joseph Campbell can talk about it so well in your heart. Are you having, is the intellectual, is the brain, is it Kabir that says he who tries to learn the song of love through the workbook of reason or something. Mm-hmm. There's something, it's just like, it's, it doesn't work. How, how is the other half of you feeling? Are you opening? Are you blossoming? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a teenage girl having yeah. a tough talk with her dad. Yeah. <laughs> but are you able to, to tow your, to tow your um, your heart along for the journey? Are you feeling I'm transformation? I'm trying. So, I mean, in the Enneagram, I, I score very high in the investigator and perfectionist boxes, um, which is, you know, that part of my personality is, you know, putting these clues together and spending lots of times in archives and libraries and, and reading weird things on the internet. But like, I mean, honestly, the birth of my daughters has kind of exploded my heart. And so I'm very aware of the fact that I need to be working on these other boxes. And th- I think that that is my great challenge in life is, you know, um, learning to live less monastically and trying to be a good father and a good husband um, to not be able to appreciate the isness in the everything is, is to miss the point. When, when my first daughter was, was born, I was reading Ram Dass's uh, Polishing the Mirror. And he talks a lot about if you take panentheism to its logical extreme, everything you're doing is imbued with God. And so I got to be, I got to doing this meditation with my daughters when I was changing diapers or washing the dishes. You know, if everything is God, then as I was doing that routine activity, I would say, okay, so I'm God washing God with the water that is God Mm. and drying it with the towel that is God and putting away the teacup that is God and then I'm going to pour a glass of orange juice for my daughter, which is God. And the act of offering it to her is also God. The act of offering is God. And so it's God doing God with God. And I literally think about that, which is crazy, every time I'm doing these activities, because the only way I think to be a conscious parent and to try and be less of a perfectionist um, and to live in that heart space is to just slow down and breathe um, and try and live in that mystery. I don't know. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. I, it's so funny. I think you and I both have our guard up to not sound insane. I, I wish, well, my ego wishes you could see me cooking for my daughter because I'm cooking for the goddess. It's very Hindu. It's like a guest comes into your home and you treat them like God. When I cook for Leela, I cooked her uh, some eggs this morning. I was like, I want to take a picture of these eggs. Like the most perfect, so many greens and just the right amount of salt. I'm not eating any of it. It's just for her. And you give it like Prasad. You're giving the goddess Prasad. You're giving her herself from her father. You start to feel like the Trinity. You start to feel like 
here I'm the father, there's the daughter, and I'm giving her my body. It's it, like you start to see how the whole thing is like an Ouroboros. It's just eating itself, but you're doing it in love and, and nothing's happening, but everything's happening. And you couldn't lose me with that sort of stuff if you tried. That my you daughter, sounded crazy. I thought I sounded pretty good. You sounded crazy. <laughs> my daughter... The chapter about my daughter is 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 t- entitled "Luminous Emptiness," mm. and that's the Buddhist idea that it, it's consciousness without an object. It's 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 uh, emptiness. I think some people would have issue with, like you're calling your daughter empty, and I'm like, I mean that as the highest compliment. She has nothing to guard. We have so many myths. I would argue that John Wick is a myth of that. He loses his wife. He loses his dog. He loses his house. And he's called back into his job. I know it's just an action movie, but there's these themes of like, oh, it's non-attachment. How many stories do we need to see where they have nothing left to lose? But the trip report that I watched before this interview, the guy went into the great beyond and somebody showed him the manifestation of his attachment to his mother and said, if you want nirvana, you have to let go of this. You literally have to drop this attachment to your mother <laughs> like which which by the way look to any superhero for other examples of this show me a superhero that has their parents they don't have their parents because they don't have anything to lose so as gandhi says if you make yourself zero your power becomes infinite they become zero and they become infinite they they become powerful there's there's a greek word for that not to nerd out but it, it's it's kenosis which is which is the emptying and the idea of that losing the self to find the self right back into this concept of dying before dying. It's, it's, it's this weird, you know, paradoxical formula. It's a formula that, that when you do empty the self, you know, um, and you, you, you annihilate that ego as, uh, you know, as properly as possible, then something tells us that something remains. And that sounds um, nonsensical, but it is the great teaching you find throughout all these traditions. It's the kenosis of emptying the self in order to find the God self, the true self, the Atman Brahman that, that underlies all existence. Um, and it's, it's there if you accept the fact that all creation is imbued with divinity, which sounds like a big thing, but you can find it kind of in Genesis. You find it better maybe in the Upanishads. Um, Joe Campbell talks a lot about that, about the, the, how the creation myth there is slightly different. It's not that we tasted of the fruit of good and evil and were thereby banished from paradise. It's that the creator says something like, um, I have poured myself into this creation. Therefore, I am this creation. And he who knows this becomes in this creation a creator. It's a, it's a, it's a very different origin myth, but it has everything to do with emptying the self to find the self. And as I'm reading the Gospel of Thomas, he says, I have set the world ablaze and I, 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 I set the world on fire and I came here to stoke it into a blaze, something like that. And I was like, that's a very trippy idea. Look, I make all things new is a very trippy idea. When you realize that creation or Alan Watts would say the Big Bang wasn't an event and then we're here. The Big Bang is still happening. The expansion is still happening. The splattering, he says, if you throw a bottle of ink on a white wall, that's the bang. And what we are is we're one of the tendrils. We're one of these little squiggles 
and we're just playing that out. But it's all the Big Bang. It's all the expansion. It's all the same thing happening. It's all the it's the same fire that's being stoked that we're being invited into for to include your thing from the Upanishads. And this is my last Greek nerd moment. But in in, in John's Gospel, in in the uh, in one nine, the very beginning of his Gospel. Uh, he talks about that ongoing process. It's not just one incarnation. It's not just one blast off into into divinity, but this concept of theosis, the constant divinization of the created manifest world is an ongoing process because the Greek there is this this ongoing participle, echomenon. Um, so the idea that Jesus is is coming into being all the time. It's yes. an ever, ever-present always eternal process. Again, it doesn't happen in the past, just like immortality doesn't happen in the future. It's not something that awaits us at the end of life. And so when you start to think about this endlessness and this timelessness, this is the space that we find ourselves in again and again and again. That is the timeless moment. That's that's eternity. That is, that's orange juice for your daughter. Yes, yes. Would you please tell the story of going out with your daughter's to look at the trees. Would you please tell that story? It was so moving to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, let, let me uh, let me find my notes real quick so I can pull it up. Brian, as you're looking for that note, as we're talking, I'm like, how are we not fascinated and talking about this stuff sort of all the time? I understand. <laughs> but it's all in the game. It's fine. But it's. I wonder if you feel the same way that I do, that I'm like, I, I'm so lucky to have this podcast. I'm so lucky to have this life that affords me these conversations. Mm-hmm. And I hope the people listening feel the same way because I know there's a lot of us that are just like, wait, the phenomenon that's looking out my eyes is the phenomenon. I, I was saying to somebody recently, I was like, people think, oh, maybe we're living in a simulation. Elon Musk thinks we're living in a simulation. I was like, that solves nothing. Even if you hook my consciousness into a computer program, it doesn't solve the fundamental mystery of what is the pearl of great price. What is the immortal diamond? Mm. What is looking at the simulation? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like people want to go like, well, it's a simulation. So mystery over. No, no, no. <laughs> mystery, mystery just begun. Who created the simulation? <laughs> right. Who created the simulation and what's looking at the simulation? What's hearing the simulation? What is being... For whom is being simulated? <laughs> That's always going to be the only question in town. And if you say it's the dream of, or the dice game of Shiva, or, or it's the Leela of the universe, th- those are just ways of understanding it. But it always comes back down to what is listening to my voice right now and what is seeing my hand do this right now. That I mean, that's it. And dude, again, we sound like stoners. I was at my at the dining room table with my in-laws and I was looking at my hand and I was really just tripping out that there's a thing, there's an appendage that obeys these invisible thoughts that I command. And I was tripping out at that as you motherfucking should be. And my mother-in-law, who I love, she went hand like she, <laughs> she rightfully perhaps made fun of me but i mean i think we should all take a little time in the day and go like i can will this appendage up and down with an invisible unknowable phenomenon i mean it's it's incredible and so how do you translate that to a seven and a five-year-old um <laughs> it's di- it's difficult so i start with the fall of freddie the leaf 
And the fall of uh, Freddie the Leaf is written by Leo Buscaglia. And we, we read this every fall as an introduction to the mysteries because it's, it's really the mystery of death and rebirth for kindergartners and toddlers. I recommend it to all uh, young parents. Um, it has to do with looking at the natural cycles because th this is really what the mysteries are, if you think about it. The mysteries, all we've been talking about is this, 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 this grand paradox of death and rebirth, you know, dying to the self to find the self. You see it throughout nature. And so I think the best way to talk about this stuff is by looking at nature. Imagine for a second, you woke up a total amnesiac. You'd never experienced a day on this earth and you're watching the sunset. Why would you assume that the sun wasn't dying? And wouldn't you be surprised that the next day up it comes again and down it goes again until it stops becoming a miracle. But at some point you think the sun's just gonna die, right? And the Egyptians actually tell stories about this, what happens to the sun in the underworld before it comes back up. And then another problem arises, the moon. The moon is growing and growing until it becomes full and huge and luminous. And that's a beautiful thing. But then panic uh, sets in because it begins to get a little bit smaller. Maybe it's your eyes playing tricks on you, but then you notice over the subsequent two weeks, it's actually disappearing. And then it disappears entirely. And mm. the sky is black, which is not a good thing. And there's no light. And you're there under the stars of the Milky Way trying to figure out what the hell happened to the moon. And then resurrection. The tiniest fingernail sliver of the moon comes back, just like the sun. And then it gets weirder. So now you're thinking about the mysteries of, of, of the seasons. And this is where the fall of Fred of the Leaf comes in. And so I think that the, the best way to describe resurrection to two little girls is by talking about the life cycle of, of trees and plants and what happens. And so every fall, we'll go out and, and, and talk about the leaves and we'll talk about Persephone, uh, this, this goddess who's uh, abducted into the underworld and the, the trees are crying. They turn orange and red because it, it's the blood, it's the life force of these trees going off into the underworld. Um, but then comes spring, Persephone is resurrected. This is the great teaching of the ancient mysteries. The flowers bloom, life comes back um, and there's great joy and celebration. And so this is as close we'll ever get to discussing religion. And I asked them, how do the flowers always manage to come back after such a harsh winter? And the refrain is because nothing ever dies. Hmm. That's it. <laughs> See you later, Pete. <laughs> Wow. One last psychedelic thing. What, if you ever do it, but I'll just tell you when I do it, you always go, was the sky, has it always been there? You become fascinated. You can't believe that it was always up there and you weren't just staring at it or trees or the moon. And having lost that connection, you know, I think has a lot to do with I don't want to overly summarily summarize all the problems of our world, but it's like we're losing a connection to nature and to the universe and to flow and cycle and connection and, mm. and isolation and narcissism. And um, so you, you said in one of your emails to me, the oneing, I mean, that's the real work is to, when Jesus says what you do for the least of these, you do for me. I mean, that's, that's it, right? I mean, just as impersonally as the 
acorn becoming an, another tree, like we're supposed to look at everything as precious and everything is worthy. And Richard is also a one on the Enneagram and, and he's always just talking about like, you're, you don't have to earn God's love. You are God's love. Mm-hmm. You, you're already dignified. Alan Watts says, you're not a stranger here. Just like the cycle of that tree, you aren't just a overseer of nature. You are nature. You are nature. It's insane. It's not insane. It's gorgeous. What a perfect way to end. I feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> Into hour three we go. <laughs> well, let's just say, we'll, because I want to get you back to your daughters, let's just talk another time. Let's just do it again sometime. Let's, let's do it again, my, my fellow traveler. I think the, there are more mysteries worth spelunking into here. I agree. Um, we didn't even talk about transubstantiation. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. Father, Jim, Father Jim's going to yell at me. <laughs> oh, man. I hope you get an audience with the Pope, too. Dude, if there's any Pope who's going to lean into you and whisper, go for it, Brian. <laughs> it's Pope Francis. I got one chance here, man. You do. Well, let's talk again. I love this so much. We talk so many deep things. Can you tell me, this is the question I always ask. You heard me ask Father Jim, probably Richard too. Can you think of a time in your life you laughed really, really, really hard? It doesn't have to be a good story, but if you're crying laughing, maybe someone farted, maybe someone fell. (laughs) The two big Fs. Um, where were you? How old are you? Is there any memory that comes to mind? Um, it would have to be witnessing my older daughter at two years old in the living room, defecating onto the carpet. <laughs> we forgot about the third F, feces. <laughs> of course, fall fart feces. She just took a poop right on the lawn. And it was glorious. Or on the rug. On the, on the rug. It was, it was glorious. Uh, there was no thought. It was just one stream of consciousness, pure <laughs> act of divine feces. Just like drawing a J, an uppercase J. <laughs> just a, one smooth motion. I say that because that's what Leela does. She sees our dog pooping on the lawn. And uh, she'll probably at some point be embarrassed that I'm saying this, which is a miracle in itself. But sometimes she just goes, I got to go poo-poo. And I go, what's going on here? And she goes, no, like Brody. And then she just, pow! <laughs> and they run so clean. They're not like you or I. They just, pow, right out, uppercase J. I love that. <laughs> Thank you for all of this. Um, we'll, we'll release it at a time that's useful to you in the book. But it's already a bestseller, so what do you care? Yeah. That's it's fine by me, Pete. Take your time. <laughs> well, would you say uh, we have the guest? Thank you so much for this. This is one I'll always remember. Um, we have the guest say the catchphrase at the end. It's how we sign off. Would you please say keep it crispy? Would you maybe translate it into ancient Greek? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can definitely get keep it uh, crispy, uh, crisp, fresh. Uh, vibrant, alive? Uh, I would say uh, there's, there's not a lot of crispiness in the ancient Greek world. Um, but uh, but I, I, can, I can do it in fake Latin. Okay. 
um, it would say Mantenevit Crispusus. <laughs> Crispusus. <laughs> That's like a moment where I'm not sure I'm dreaming because I'm like, that is what I feel like I would make up in a dream. Someone would be like, you mean Crispusus? I'm like, that. <laughs> um, and then would you please say keep it crispy? And please, by all means, keep it crispy. Thank you so much, Brian. Wow, what a treat.